I'm Margaret Feinberg, and this is the Joycast. Hi again, friends. Welcome to the latest edition of the Joycast, the half, half, happiest half hour of your week. Once again, I'm your host, Margaret Feinberg, grill master, lobster lover, and author of Taste and Sea, discovering God among butchers, bakers, and fresh food makers, both a book and a six-session Bible study, which is ideal for your summer Bible study. Maybe you've heard, but I recently received my first Fab Fit Fun Box. Now, if you've never heard of it, it's a seasonal lifestyle beauty box that contains over $200 in full-size products from brands like Tarte, Anthropology, Glam Glow, and Free People. My box contained a cute makeup bag, all kinds of lotions, eye creams, and cuticle care, and an adorable jewelry dish that I just love. A few days ago, I mentioned the FabFit Thumb Box to my friend Abby. And she said that not only is she a subscriber, but most of her friends are too. So if you want to join in on all the fun, as a listener to the Joycast, you can save $10 off your first box by using the code JOYCAST at checkout. That makes it only $39.99 for over $200 in product. So check out www.fabfitfun.com. And remember, use the code JOYCAST at checkout. When you come to our house for a meal, you'll discover that we have some practices that might feel a little unusual. First, we'll gather in the kitchen, where in the middle of our kitchen island, you'll find a charcuterie board, a collection of cheeses and fruits and nuts and meats and yummy jams. I'll probably offer you a drink from a huge basket overloaded with sparkling water, sodas, and more. We'll munch and talk as Leif or I finish up the last steps of cooking the meal, which will always include a salad and a vegetable or two. And no matter what's on the table, you'll find gluten-free and dairy-free options available. Now, when it comes time to eat, we don't sit at the dining room table, unless there are small kiddos or maybe a medical need. Instead, we gather around our living room coffee table. Some people may sit on the floor or hold their plate on their lap, or eat over this large barnyard door table in the center of the room. Now, none of this is accidental. We have intentionally implemented these practices to disarm our guests, to make them feel more at home. Over the years, we've noticed these culinary rhythms have the power to create richer conversations and deeper connections. For us, A formal dining table can sometimes make people feel a little more reserved, a little more stifled when we are doing everything we can so that now people can just simply be themselves. You see, when you come over to a meal at our house, it's more than a consumption of calories. We want you to feel nourished physically, emotionally, and relationally. All these little details are designed to curate a space where Our hearts are nourished by the presence of Christ and each other. You see, I think many of you, myself included, can live our lives on the go, consuming food, but not really being nourished, sharing a meal, but not really being nourished. You see, to be nourished means to receive what we need for growth, for health, for human flourishing. 
And I think we all long for this whenever we gather around the table and throughout our daily lives. One of my friends who has been challenging me to think more deeply about what it means to live a more nourished life, that we may help others live more nourished lives, is Tish Harrison Warren. If I could sum her up in one word, it would be delightful. She's the kind of person that beams joy, a joy caster everywhere she goes. And in her book, The Liturgy of the Ordinary, she helps us become aware of God's presence in the most surprising ways, including around the table. One of my favorite moments of the interviews is when she invites us to think more clearly and specifically about what we need to do whenever we find ourselves around the table and preparing food in everyday life. So pull up a seat at our table because you don't want to miss this one. Hey, Tish, I am so excited to have you on the Joycast today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. There's a sense that as I read your book and as we've talked that this idea of liturgy or maybe a common, uh, more layman's terms, you may want to adjust this, but would be perhaps repetitive action. What what would be a, a just a, a replacement phrase for liturgy, maybe for the less religious? Yeah, I think you could say um, it is a repetitive practice. I'd want to get at something though about formation or about something that shapes us. So maybe we could call it a shaping practice or a shaping habit. A shaping habit might be a good good kind of stand-in for liturgy. But it is also shaping habit is it could be really individual individual. And I do think there's something about liturgy when Christians talk about it in terms of a worship service of, of that you can't do it alone, that it's something we do together. So uh, I'm fine with shaping habit as long as, as we understand that to be communal as well. I think there are a lot of people today in this temptation to be like, it's my faith. It's my personal journey. It's it's really about me not recognizing that communal element. But I'm curious, can you talk about um, maybe some of the liturgy or the shaping practices that say you talk about doing it every day in your kitchen? Can you give me an example of one of those? So we make dinner and my husband and I kind of take turns doing that. But then we sit down. So this is our kitchen and dining room are kind of one space. So we sit down and we um, eat together and we go around the table and uh, I have two kids. I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old and everyone at the table says there are highs and lows of the day. The best part of the day, the worst part of the day. My five-year-old calls it happy and sad. And then we each say something we're grateful for. And that's really great uh, because we're eating together we're enjoying our food and each other, but it's, uh, you know, if you ask an eight-year-old or a five-year-old, how was your day? Even honestly, if you ask my 38-year-old husband, how was your day? It's too, it's too big of a question to get your hands around. So when you really have to kind of drill down and think of the best and worst of the day, we get way more information out of each other. There's this Christian notion of the examine where you uh, you look at des- what desolation is the term, like times that feel uh, hard or dark or fruitless or um, 
destructive even. And then you look at consolation, times of comfort, times that you sense the nearness of God, times that you laughed and had joy. And so, uh, you know, that's a lot for a five-year-old and eight-year-old. <laughs> but I feel that we've talked about this little practice of highs and lows is kind of like their easy entry point into into the exam and into consolation and desolation. And there's something about that that feels so nourishing. It's 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 the sense of we're going to share from our lives and out of that nourish each other, both with the highs and the lows, with the vulnerability and the celebrations. And that in that, that nourishment comes out of more just whatever food may be on the table, but nourishing each other from our daily lives. And I love that you make it so accessible because it's not just you, you know, and other adults doing it. It's you with your children and engaging. And I would imagine there's some, sometimes that just in the shaping process that your own kids say things that are wise. Can you think of any of those that come to mind in that? That nourishing shaping practice of of gathering on the table. My kids all the time say, "I feel like you know, I'm a priest. My husband's a priest, so our daughters are, you know, double priest kids. So uh, I feel really <laughs> sorry for them a lot of times. But because of that, they're like so they're way too smart for me. And um, I don't know. I mean, off the top of my head, I can think of one this morning. This is so funny that uh, because um, so for the very first time of my life, I did online grocery shopping. You can order through Prime grocery shopping. I just did it last week for the first time and I loved it. It was it was great. Okay, wait, wait. How did how did it arrive? Like, I haven't done it yet. I definitely need to. Some of our listeners are wondering too. Like, like so you literally went to, to we'll just name it. We, you went I to went, Amazon. Yes, went, I, click, click, I went click. to Prime now. It was it was snowing outside and I had both of my kids and um I had to get something for dinner that night and I basically was like, I'm going to try this. So they brought me food. It was amazing. And it was a great experience. But I went to Prime now and I ordered it. And they brought it like two hours later. It's funny because I then I, I went to Wheaton this last week and I was speaking about many things. But one of the things I spoke about is how new technology, di- digital technology, can make it where we don't know our actual place and our actual neighbors. And we prioritize distant relationships. So my eight-year-old like watched part of my talk. And then this morning, I was talking to my husband about this was such a great experience. I want to like try this again. And my eight year old goes, Mom, if you don't go to the store, you're, she said, you're not doing what you said in your talk, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I want you to listen, don't listen anymore to the talks I give. So, she calls me out on stuff like that. It's especially around digital technology. She's like, she's like my little fundamentalist, like, like about technology, at least she's like, get off screens, which is really, really good and helpful for me. So, uh, but they say really insightful things a lot. I, I feel like they're, they ask a lot of questions. They're very interested in spiritual things. My five-year-old right now, her big thing, theological question, which I think is a good one, is why does Jesus have to be invisible if he's alive? Um, So we talk a lot about that. And uh, so they are, they're 
brilliant little kids. Talk to me about how do those of us who maybe uh, that that liturgy, that that spiritual shaping practice of communion has become stale. It has become rote. It has just become, and I'll just be honest, often what's served, it tastes terrible. I'm just going to call it. Sorry to be a f- aspiring foodie here, but that icky little flat, like cardboard dissolving piece of, I don't know what it is. And somebody bought the generic juice or like, like how do we bring that back to life so that we are truly being nourished in partaking of that? Yeah. Um, that's a great, that's a great question. I, I mean, I'm an Anglican, so Eucharist is a big deal or communion, Lord's Supper, whatever. I don't care what you call it. Um, but, uh, so one of the things I have loved speaking of my kids is my, uh, we have wine and my four-year-old loves, uh, my five-year-old loves the taste of wine of our communion wine. That's the only wine she's ever had. So every time we bring it up, she goes, it's so yummy, (laughs) 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 which I really like that. She thinks the wine is yummy. It is good wine. Um, yeah, I write in liturgy, the ordinary, I have a chapter on, on the Eucharist and nourishment and talk about how, how the convenience economy, which drives a lot of our, food choices. I mean, certainly mine, I just talked about ordering food online. Um, how that can separate us from the people that grow our food, the people that harvest our food, uh, and how, uh, resisting some of that through things like community supported agriculture and farmers markets and can be a way to kind of rediscover place and people, uh, but I tie it in with the Eucharist because um, so late modern capitalism, like the whole concept of it is if I have more, you have less, right? That we, there's this limited amount of resources. There's only a certain amount of pie and we have to kind of fight over it. And the Eucharist re- witnesses to this totally different economy of, and I, I, I don't necessarily mean that politically. I'm not. I'm not talking about socialism or something. But I'm saying that in the kingdom of God, there's this idea that we have what we have, we have together. And so it's not I have more, so you must have less. Or if you get more, I get less. But that uh, there's abundance, and that if you don't have enough, I don't have enough either. That taking care of our neighbors and knowing our neighbors is part of our own abundance. And so um, I talk in the book about how I, I feel like the Eucharist always is a picture of kind of judgment and invitation. And so it, it can sort of judge the paltriness of, of our own table of the way that, that we um, I don't mean in terms of food, even I mean, I guess in terms of love, in terms of holiness, but it also, um, but it also invites us to more. I mean, it, it constantly invites us to a feast. So something I bring up a lot is that um, I, I kind of do wish Eucharist was more feast-like. I mean, I, I agree with you about. I, I kind of don't like the little tiny bread wafers, and I get why people do it. It's sufficient, but um, but this meal always is supposed to point to a feast that Christians think that sort of all of history ends with a feast, ends with a celebration uh, with Jesus. And so, um, so when we take the Eucharist, I 
remind our people that we are doing it with all Christians all over the world, so globally, and also historically. So we're taking this, and this is a great mystery, what I'm talking about. So, But we're, we believe we're taking it with every Christian throughout time. So, you know, St. Augustine and Dorothy Day and also my grandmother, and we're all kind of what we can actually see of the meal is just a little snapshot of what is spiritually happening. So uh, I think we need a really expansive view of this as a global and historic meal. And I love that idea that it is both a place of judgment and a place of invitation, that opportunity to enter in and to say, what is going on in my heart? And to say, maybe Christ or God, what are you doing in me? What are some of the things that maybe I need to leave behind in recognition of all that you have done? You have this wonderful quote in your book from Anne Lamott, who says all things funny, witty, and slightly inappropriate. Earth is forgiveness school. You might as well start at the dinner table. That way, you do the work in comfortable pants. It it does. It's true. It happens both at the Eucharist or the communion or the Lord's Supper, whatever name you want to use, and that, that it is that entrance into forgiveness school. But it's also one that in living a nourishing life that we don't just practice by being nourished with Christ in a global community, but at our own tables, gathering around. Where have I hurt you? How can I make things right? Uh, so that we are starting to do the work and are comfortable. Yeah, that's totally right. I think if we leave this vision, I think the vision has to be big and global and historic. So it's not just about sort of me, but if we just leave it there, it's so abstract, we can't enter into it. The whole notion of, of Christian faith, I think, is that you get, you get to the global, you get to the many, to the large through the one, through the concrete, through like really, really earthy stuff of real life. So this idea of this heavenly feast, even this global uh, kind of all of history leading to this feast that has to change, you know, like your average dinner on Wednesday night, it has to sort of enter in there, which is partly why I love that quote of hers is the idea that, I mean, I really do think that forgiveness for all of us begins with, the people that are closest to us, often our family or our close friends, that we, that's where we learn this stuff. And so we've, we have had fights around our kitchen table and have to learn, I mean, quite literally at our table, how to talk through this stuff, how to love each other. So I do think like the craft of love begins at home. It's a home craft. Amen and amen. Now, something that we like to do before we conclude here on the Joycast is get our guests' favorite recipe or dish. So what do you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, this the thing that I said was is not necessarily my favorite. It's just a, one that we go to a lot. It's like a weeknight meal uh, one because it's easy and it's healthy and it's um, gluten and dairy free. So all of that is very helpful. Uh, we use something from uh, it's dance while you cook. I think it's called, she calls it barbecue chicken perfection and it's a crock pot meal. Uh, and it, but it has cabbage in it and my kids love it and my kids will eat this and it's cabbage. So I feel like they're just getting, they're getting something at least marginally healthy and they, they really like it. 
I love it. I love it. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to get both of those recipes from you to share with our listeners. And so that's good news for all of you who are listening because we're going to have both of those full recipes. And all you have to do to get them is log on to margaretfeinberg.com forward slash joycast, where you're going to find the full recipes and all the show notes, as well as ways to connect with Trish through her writing, speaking, and more. Thank you so much for being with us on the Joycast. Yeah, thank Thanks for having me. What is Write Brilliant Live in Houston, Texas, coming this July 15th through 17th, 2019? Well, we firmly believe that anyone can become a writer if they learn to craft spectacular prose for a specific person while building a sustainable platform. In other words, Write Brilliant can help you realize your writing dreams. Whether you're a novice or a veteran, Write Brilliant Live is designed for anyone who is serious about writing, publishing, and building an audience. This conference is hosted by Ecclesia at their West Side campus, and the space is limited. At Write Brilliant Live, you're going to learn how to craft stunning prose that will set you apart from the masses. Identify your best story, your strongest content, and where your message resonates. Network and collaborate with others. You're going to learn how to propel yourself ahead of the pack through self or traditional publishing. You're also going to watch a master writing coach transform an essay into pure magic in fewer than four minutes. And you're going to learn how to capture editors' attention and see your writing published. We will help you develop the skills you need to thrive, the ones writing coaches seldom discuss. This gathering is designed for those committed to honing the craft of writing. You don't need to be a full-time writer, have a large platform, or be previously published to attend. But space is limited. To grab your spot, if it's still available, go to www.writebrilliant.com backslash Houston. We will look forward to seeing you there.